It's Brian Preston, the money guy. Restoring order to your financial chaos. Retirement, investing, taxes. You've got financial questions, he's got financial answers. It's Brian Preston, the money guy. So let me start out today's show by going ahead and giving you a teaser of what we're going to be covering. We're going to be talking about shareholder yield. Now, what's incredible about this, and by the way, after I get through with the teaser, I'm going to go into a sidebar, but I think you guys expect that at this point. But shareholder yield is one of those things, if you can hang in there with this podcast today, you are going to be smarter than 80% of the rest of the investors out there in the world. And what I mean by that is, I think so few people out there, it doesn't matter if they're just do-it-yourself type investors as well as professional investors, don't completely understand how important yield is to your entire portfolio and how you design your investment portfolio. So this is going to be a good one. For and, all of my technicians, you're going to love this show today. And, and wouldn't you also say that most investors probably don't even understand what true shareholder yield is? Oh, for sure. That's why, that's why I give such a high number. I mean, there's no, nothing scientific to my 80% number other than I think if I just my experience of going to conferences, talking to a lot of other advisors as well as the individuals and watching the point that they glaze over when you start talking about topics, you realize you hit a, a really shallow area of understanding with most investors. So we're going to break this thing down in because there was a great book. I mean, I'll go ahead and tell you, I, my partner in Augusta, Georgia, Remember, I'm the, I'm the loud one of the group. And then my partner, Bill Cleveland in Augusta is the smart one. And Bill, um, you know, recommended a book for us to, to look at. He said, Hey guys, shot over an email and said, look at shareholder yield, a better approach to dividend investing. My, by Mabane Faber. But, but let's go ahead and tell them why when Bill sent the email, it really piqued our interest. It well, was free on Amazon for a week, and we were like, okay, we'll read a free book. Yeah, we, we do like free. But it was, I w- <laughs> truthfully, after going through it now, I would have paid because it was a quick, it was a quick read as well. So, and everything flowed through very nicely. But um, before we get into the meat of the show, I do want to share with you that Bo and I actually landed in Atlanta just yesterday. We've spent close to a week in Mexico trying to revitalize ourselves by sitting on a beach in Mexico and then pouring a little bit of tequila and cervezas in there to, to see if that could help power this engine as much as possible. And, and I'll tell you, it's been a success. I came back. I'm energized. I got three or four ideas that I cannot wait to implement. And, you know, that's another thing is I think a lot of you guys, are, and I know Carol and Gabe, y'all are watching the show. You know, you, you probably wonder, these guys are kind of sick because when we go on vacation, we don't read. Like, I think my wife tries to find whatever – latest and greatest book that all of her girlfriends in the neighborhood are reading the newest vampire saga yeah or some you know there's something out there but you know but we actually read betterment books you know like i read the shareholder yield i also read another started reading another document you know biography on um walt disney as you know i'm a huge fan of him just trying to learn as much as possible but we came back fully energized but i do want to let you in on a conspiracy theory that i've figured out I have, Bo and I have been traveling for a while when we go to client meetings and other things, and I'm a huge fan of Apple products. And obviously, Apple likes us to a degree because that's who put us on the map with iTunes. But Siri, you know, Siri was supposed to be this great invention or innovation that came on the iPhone. 
But Siri, ever since I've had Siri, it's just like I watch all these commercials and you see these people from Hollywood, whoever, whatever spokesperson they have in the commercial, and they're just yelling commands at Siri and they're changing dates. They're doing all these great things, looking up links on the internet. So I hit the button for Siri and it's like the girl doesn't hear me. I mean, because it just sits there, you know, right there on the microphone. It just keeps spinning like I didn't say a word. So I'm like, I've told Bo... There's a conspiracy, you know, that, that it doesn't recognize my voice. And I thought it was a Southern thing. I was like, okay, I'm just too Southern for Siri to understand me. But then Bo, I can hand the phone over to Bo. He can do it, and immediately Siri will shoot out directions or do whatever we need. So I was already upset. So we go to Mexico. And what I find very interesting in Mexico is that, and once again, I don't know what's going on, but like when a waiter came by to take drink orders around the pool or the beach, I could t- order something, and it was very clear. Everybody there heard me say it, and then he didn't bring me any drinks. I mean, this went on for like three or four rounds that, I, you know, everybody was having drinks except for Brian, even though I ordered a drink each time he came through. So I've realized what's happened. What's that? Apple hired a Mexican engineer <laughs> to design Siri, and that's my voice is just not – you know, it can't be comprehended. Just, it's kind of like a dog whistle. They don't get it. They don't. They don't hear it. it. It just doesn't come through. But that's that's a conspiracy theory that I came up with while I was in Mexico. By the way, it was I, so. By the end of the trip, what what ended up actually happening is whenever Brian needed to order something, he'd be like, "Hey, Bo, this is what I want." And so through me, we would have to order it because he he's not kidding. It really did happen this way. The, they just did. I don't know if they they just couldn't get it. They couldn't grasp the concept that Mr. Preston was trying to convey to them. Fortunately. You guys grasp my English much better than <laughs> most people in Mexico do, obviously, or as well as Siri. But um, also in the audience today, I have my, my oldest daughter. Avery's here watching. And, and one of the things you guys should know is my daughter looks exactly like me. Who knew I was such a pretty girl? <laughs> but she is my wife in more ways than one. I mean, the way she acts. I mean, it's so funny to me when I see Things that my wife does, and then I see things that Avery does, and I'm like, these two are the same people, except for she looks just like me. So it's kind of fun. Um, Avery, what game are you playing? You're big into right now. It used to be Minecraft. Now, what are you into? Animal Jam. Animal okay, Jam. that's 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 what that's what she's digging on the, right now. So big into the computer video games. But let's let's jump back into the meat of this thing. First of all, this is the Money Guy Show even though we talk about Mexico, Animal Jam, and all kind of other things. But this is the Money Guy Show at money-guy.com. By day, we're fee-only financial advisors with offices in Nashville, Tennessee, McDonough, Georgia, as well as Augusta, Georgia. We do this to try to really no other purpose than just to help you make the best financial decisions possible with your money. You're going to see that because today's show, I'm going to give it away. Just like Mr. Faber gives it away in his book on some key concepts. And people, I know when I go to conferences, they're like, how can you do this podcast and just give away the information? And what I realize is this is not like a cookie recipe. Whereas if I give you the best cookie recipe you've ever put in your mouth, I've given it away. And now you might be able to go recreate the same cookies that has made me famous with my family because I have this famous recipe. It doesn't work that way with investing or financial planning because nine months from now, the world is going to completely change from an economic standpoint. So you're not hiring me for 
what I'm giving you, the recipe. You're hiring us for who we are and a skill set that we have. So that's why I love just sharing and giving it away as much as possible. It's that whole heart of an educator. Absolutely. So here's, here's let's jump into the, this book. And this book, probably, what does it take? About an hour and a half to read, Bo? I mean, I think we had it. You know, I start, you were reading a different book. I started reading The Plane Ride. Plane Ride to Mexico is like two hours, maybe. And I think I had the whole thing read before we landed. So it's a quick, I mean, it's only... I read on the iPads. I don't know how many pages, but it's a little small, quick read. Doesn't take a, a ton of time at all. And the way I'm going to do this is, is in the chapter eight, I believe, the summary chapter, which kind of brings it all together. There's a few bold face things that he hoped that you got out of the book. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to just read those to you as well as give you some supporting information. And by the way, Gabe, as you're putting the show notes together, I do want to give him full props. So I think um, the website for the book is something like shareholderyield.com. Is that right? Uh, do I... Yeah, it's that simple. It's just shareholderyield.com. So make sure we give um, Mr. Faber just a link out there because he really did do incredible work with this, and I, I want to make sure he gets full credit for it. But the first key concept in the summary section that he hopes that we all understand is that dividends and their reinvestment contribute a major portion of the stock market total return over time. So when you hear that, you're like, Okay, so dividends have contributed to a lot of the return. What, what does that mean? Well, he gives us actual numbers. The research shows from 1871, that's right, we went all the way back to 1871 to 2011, U.S. stocks returned 8.83%. By the way, before we even talk about the digesting of the numbers, that's awesome. You know, that's and think annualized, 8.83%. Yeah, and think right? about that in terms of you hear people talk about all the time, there is a range of where equity markets return. It's typically between 8 and 11%. But all those are super healthy, and it's just one of those things, no matter what's going on in the world, what crazy madman is out there blowing stuff up, or which tragedy is going on in some economy, in the long term, just the productivity and just the desire of human nature to grow and build and innovate has led the stock markets, equity markets, to grow at 8.83% since 1871. That, that to me, is almost one of those goosebump things just to understand I mean, that's about investing. has gone 150 years, right? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's incredible. I mean, so that's not one generation. That's multiple, multiple people making that happen. The other thing, I, but here's, here's what's important about that number. 8.83% is the total return per year on an annualized basis. But look at this. You exclude dividends being reinvested? That number drops down to 4.13%. That's half, right? Over half is coming from dividends being reinvested. So here's a great way to visual for my visual learners. 1871, say you're a vampire and you actually were here in 1871. <laughs> um, so you, you put $100 into the, the stock market. Okay. If you just left that $100 in the stock market, didn't reinvest the dividends, you got your checks cashed them, mm -hmm. went and did something with them, who knows. That $100 investment at the end of 2011 would have been worth $28,887. I mean, that's so, pretty incredible to think yeah, about. $100 turned into twenty nine grand. Not bad. You had to live a long time to make that happen, but, you know, not, not bad. But listen to this. If you just said, hey, I don't need that dividend, let's just let it kind of roll into it, reinvest into the process. What do you say, in Vegas, let it ride? Well, remember, we don't equate investing <laughs> to gambling, so we're, we're not letting it ride. You're, we're reinvesting. We're going back into the exact same investment that we came from, letting the money work for itself. 
That same account that would have gone from $100 to $29,000, if you reinvested the dividends, that $29,000 turns into $13 million. Did y'all hear that? We went, we went from thousands to millions. $13,955,952. So $14 million, essentially. Look at Carol. That's, that's big, isn't it? If only we were around in 1871. Man, I mean, Where's Michael J. Fox and the flux capacitor when you need it? We could make this thing rock at this point. I could probably take back, you know, something that's worth two or three hundred dollars, and you know, we'd be we'd be rolling now. But um, another thing that I think is important, and we talk about this price to earnings ratio. You hear us talk about price to earnings ratio all the time. Well, this talks about the cyclically adjusted price earnings. And the reason they're cyclically adjusted is because you're trying to smooth out the numbers. You're going over a number of years, so you're trying to smooth out so you, you can see where the, the price-earnings ratio is, taking out market cycle fluctuations. And half the time, the range of uh, the price-earnings uh, price have been between 10 to 20. That's over half the time it's been there, with the median value being around 17. That's probably where you hear people talking about good PDE price-earnings ratio is around 15, but the median is around 17, with the low being 5 in 1920, and the high being 45 reached in 1999. That does not shock me at all, by the way. It doesn't sound crazy. Because this is 1999 was the period, just to give you guys um, a little perspective, that was the year that you had web grocery companies have a market capitalization bigger than if you added up all the big brick-and-mortar grocers Altogether. I mean, it was just a weird world where you had people telling you we were in a new paradigm where the internet was going to change the world so much so that you didn't have to worry about valuations anymore. Earnings didn't matter because it was limitless what this, this new productivity that was going to come from the internet was going to do. And the internet, no doubt, has changed our lives. But it is amazing how timely these examples still hang in there throughout history. I mean, right. you just keep those in mind when you hear people talking about wearing brand new paradigms, never seen anything like this. Usually they get proven wrong in the long term. So the reason I bring up the price earnings is because one of the things that Mr. Faber talks about is that dividends provide all the returns to stocks in bubbly environments. So if you get into a high price earnings period, which I will tell you, the S&P is tearing it up right now. I think I would consider this a high price to earnings period that we're in right now. I mean, what he say the cyclically adjusted PE was for this most recent end of 12 months? It was over 20. Months. Yeah, I think it was like 21, right around there. So that's, that's well over the 17, which is the median. So if you're in the upper half, that means, you know, you'd, you'd be considered overvalued to, to some degree. And it wasn't that long ago that I was talking about how low you know, if you compare the S&P 500 dividend yield to the 10-year treasury, how much of a great, how good of a deal the 10-year, you know, the, the S&P 500 dividend yield was. But we've had such great performance and such huge run-up here, we might be getting a little ahead of ourselves on some of the things in the S&P 500. But that's, who knows? We never know until after we go through the cycle and we don't invest in, in that way that we're trying to guess. But I, I just tell you that just as an education piece. So we move on and we start talking about dividend yields and their impact in your portfolio. And here's the second thing that he puts on his summary page. Portfolios that invested in high-yielding dividend stocks have outperformed low-yielding portfolios and broad market indices in the U.S. and in foreign markets. I mean, that, that's pretty 
powerful stuff. I think said differently, uh, companies that return cash to shareholders have fared better from a stock standpoint than companies that have not returned cash yeah, to shareholders. And, and here's some stats that support that. Dartmouth professor Kenneth French ranked U.S. stocks from 1927 all the way through 2010. With the highest dividend yields, those stocks with the highest dividend yields returned 11.2%. Low dividend yield stocks returned 9.1% per year. And then stocks that didn't pay a dividend at all yielded 8.4%. So there's a substantial spread there right. in performance based upon does the company pay dividends mm-hmm. and paying attention to that. And then another group, a whole bunch of people were involved with this study, did it even a longer period from 1900 to 2010 on UK stocks. So they went across the pond, looked at the same data, you know, looking at the UK stocks and found the exact same thing. So this is not just an American thing. This is a global thing. And that goes on to the third point. Portfolios that invested in high-yield dividend countries have outperformed low-yielding countries as well as broad indices of countries. Starting to notice a pattern here. Yeah, so I mean, this is not just a fluke where you spotted an indicator or or, or a hot dot that you you see on a a series of data points, and you go, wow, what's going on there? No, this is a trend. This is a pattern that you can start saying, this pattern must mean something. How do I... Put action to this. How do I, how do I implement this for myself? So it goes on and it, and it says, whoa, whoa, dividends are only a part of the picture. And, and here's where we're going to go into some things. Here, here's the next concept that Mr. Faber talks about. Due to tax treatment, as well as structural changes in the 1980s, U.S. companies have shifted their payout mix to include more stock buybacks. So, the reason I put the brakes on this whole thing is a lot of people, if I, if I was you listening in the audience, you hear us talking about how great dividends are. You go, well, this is easy. I'll just go take the S&P 500, export it to Excel, then I'll just sort it by dividend yield, and I'll just invest in like the 10 highest dividend-paying stocks. And I probably have a great portfolio based upon what you've shared, Brian. Nope. That's true pre-1982, right? To a degree. I mean, you're going to see, we're going to get into even more concepts because there's about three things we're going to kind of bring it all together to kind of give you that holistic approach that, that was talked about in the book. But buybacks are great things, really good things in the fact that what it is is that a company basically says, my company is valued low enough. I think that we're doing something so incredible with either innovation or product line, or we have a moat around our business where competitors can't get in and we control the market share, that the intrinsic value of my company is so strong, and yet the price is trading what it's out there on the stock market at, just doesn't reflect what this company's worth. So why don't we buy some shares back? And it used to not, not, and you mentioned, Bo, 82. The reason that's such a key year is that Pre-82, companies couldn't do that. They, there was, there was, the, the way they listed it, stock manipulation. It was considered manipulating stock if you bought back your shares because you could kind of Control influence what was yeah. going on with the stock price. Well, in 1982, they passed some changes. I've got the number, but why well, give you the number of the, whatever the SEC rule number is? But it changed all that. It said, hey, we're gonna, we're gonna let companies who think their company's worth more than what it's trading at Go put some skin in the game and and invest in their companies. And that kind of changed the way things were done. So more and more companies 
from 1982 until now, it's actually gotten where buybacks are more popular than dividends. Now, I think there's more going on than just that this rule passed. I mean, obviously, tax treatment, because it wasn't until just a few years ago, dividends have always been treated, well, haven't always, but for a large period of time, has been treated as ordinary income. Right. So that's that's not, you're not, you know, there's no incentive to pay ordinary income taxes when capital gains have, have been, had favorable tax treatments at much lower rates. So I think companies really like that, and that's one of the things. But I, I think there's also the, the benefit that dividends, you start paying a dividend, people start expecting it. They expect it every year. So if the stock market has a bad year or maybe your company has a bad year because we're in a bad economic cycle, you still need to pay those dividends if you want to keep your shareholders happy as well as not give any signs of weakness to the investment marketplace. You don't want anybody who's looking at your stock going, wow, they, they lowered their dividends. So something must be wrong over there at the company. Nope. So that's where buybacks offer a lot of flexibility. Because you don't have to do them every year like you do with a dividend or every quarter. So it, it is nice to have that flexibility. And I think that's why that, that added flexibility plus some of the market and tax benefits have led to more and more companies doing buybacks. And that's probably not going to change. Because if I was a company, I would much prefer buybacks over a dividend. It's kind of like setting a high if you had of employees. You set a super high salary. No matter what happens with your company, you have to pay that salary, whereas maybe you do a, a reasonable salary, a market-driven salary, but then do really nice bonuses based upon how good the operating results of your company. It's easier to maintain and figure out how to control the expenses of the company. It's the same thing with dividends versus buybacks. So there's a lot more flexibility. So it's not just all dividends. All of them work together. Buybacks work just like dividends work when you're trying to look at yield that you're generating as a portfolio. So that goes on to the next point that Mr. Faber talks about. Dividends are only one use of a company's cash flow. Other uses include stock buybacks, debt paydowns, acquisitions, and reinvestment in the company. All of those are positive events, and all of those things are yield to a degree. Because you think about that, buybacks, we've already talked about the reason that generates more yield for you, if there's less shares out there in the marketplace you now own a bigger portion of the company. So that's more yield, you owning more of the company. Same thing, debt pay down. You pay down debt, your balance sheet is much stronger when you don't have debt on the financial statements. So you own more. You're not as diluted from debt. Acquisitions. That's one, you know, a little scary, but it can be a powerful thing if you gobble up a company that has some brand innovation or technology innovation, something that makes you better in the marketplace. And then reinvestment in the company. So really incredible you know, opportunities there that n- encompass the yield concept much more than just dividends. So you have to, and this is the, kind of the, another one of the things that Mr. Faber talks about, accounting for other ways that companies return cash to shareholders is vital to assessing the stock's attractiveness. Said differently, you can't just focus on what the stated dividend yield is. Right, and that's what his, here's the concept that you want. If you could have the perfect world, and it was very easy to go pull all these data points, and you go create a cool spreadsheet, what you want is a a holistic shareholder yield. Mm -hmm. 
And what that consists of is dividend yield, net buyback yield, and net, net debt paydown yield. If you could take those three concepts, you would have the perfect kind of calculation to figure out what's the best companies for you to go look at. You know, because you go choose really good companies that have a really good holistic shareholder yield. And what's funny is if you go look at this in a hypothetical, you know, where you're, it's easy to know when you look at historical numbers, you can go cherry pick and figure out how things are going. But it is interesting from 1982 to 2011, if you were able to just take that shareholder yield, those three data points that I mentioned, the highest yielding dividend stocks outperformed the S&P 500 by over two percentage points a year. And here's what, and, and it kind of ties back into what I was talking about with buybacks and why they're so important. This was in the book, a quote from Warren Buffett from 1984, and I'm going to show you how this pertains to now. Warren Buffett wrote, When companies with outstanding businesses and comfortable financial positions find their share, shares selling for below intrinsic value in the marketplace, no alternative action can benefit shareholders as surely as repurchases. He said that back in 1984. I want you to fast forward to 2011, September of 2011. There was a huge announcement because it was the first time in 40 years that this occurred. But the big headline here on, um, I think this was from Wall Street Journal, Berkshire Hathaway announces a stock buyback. What cracks me up when I read, saw the articles, when I did the, the Google search on the buybacks, was that <laughs> here's how this article started. Um, it says, has Warren Buffett finally run out of ideas? His Berkshire Hathaway just announced it will buy back its own shares. This was a negative thing. They treated this as almost a negative. It, obviously, it wasn't a negative right. thing. Because I liked what Warren said down here. Here's the quote. Berkshire said the repurchase program is expected to continue indefinitely, and the amount of stock the company buys will depend upon the company's cash levels, alternate investment options, and the degree of discount from management's estimate of intrinsic value. Man, is it incredible? This is what I, I get kind of excited about. When you see people who are consistent with their, consistent with their concepts, Warren, in 1984, gave what he, his definition of kind of what he saw as when you do buybacks. So I'm talking about intrinsic value. And then in 2011, uses almost the exact same definition. Very solid. Very, very solid. I liked how his partner, Charlie Munger, um, he's the one. What's the quote we use in the quarterly report? If, you, if you're not confused. If you're not confused about the uh, current economy, you don't understand it very well. Charlie is hilarious. I think he would be a great guy. I don't know if Charlie drinks beer, but he'd be a great guy to go sit down with a beer with. Because here's his quote on the whole intrinsic buyback concept. He wrote, look for the cannibals. <laughs> I mean, that says it the best. If you want to have a concept of going and choosing really good companies, uh, an indicator could be, are they buying themselves back? Meaning they think that the value of their company is so low that they'd like to take some of their cash and buy the shares and lower how many outstanding stock shares are sitting out there in the marketplace. Yep. So look for the cannibals. I thought that was great. Um, I do want to give you a word of caution because we've talked about dividends. We've talked about buybacks. So a lot of people, once again, they might go export to Excel because I know we have some super smart technology people in the audience and think they figured this thing out. Here's the problem. Some companies will have a, you know, a good yield on paper. They might even have a yield over 3%. And then you find out they're d diluting the shares out the back door. 
What that means is they're issuing additional shares, usually to management in the background. So this is one of those things you have to be very aware, and that's why I talk about net dividend yield. You've not heard us talk about just straight-up dividend yield, because if you're looking at just dividend yield, they might be fooling you by still diluting the shares by management incentive options and other things that are adding a lot more outstanding shares to the marketplace. Um you know, I want to kind of close this thing down with two final points that um, that Mr. Faber was mentioned in his book. Portfolios that invested in companies with high dividend yields, high net buyback yields, and high net debt paydown yields have outperformed the broad market. And then he adds it to the last point. Portfolios that invested in stocks with a more holistic cash flow distribution focus, such as high shareholder yield, have experienced a higher total return than dividend yields portfolios or the broad stock market. Now you're saying, Brian, you know, what does all this mean? And, you know, because even Mr. Faber gives you a hypothetical example. And I want to give you, you know, kind of my closing out thoughts after I read this example. Maximizing shareholder yield, which remember is the dividend yield, the net buyback yield, and the debt pay, debt pay down yield results in substantial increases in absolute return. If you invested, you know, in the S&P 500, from 1982 through 2011, just bought in the S&P 500, put $100,000 in it in 1982, it would be worth $2.3 million. If you were able to somehow go find those absolute holistic shareholder yield stocks, you'd have turned the portfolio into $6.7 million because you were getting over 4% a year better than the S&P 500. But here's the thing. If you're asking yourself, this sounds great, I'm ready to hit the ground running and go with it, how do I do it? How do I implement? It's not as easy because there's no screeners that will absolutely be able to tell you the perfect things to go buy into. So you're saying, well, Brian, what's the purpose of this podcast then? The purpose is I want you to understand each of those concepts that I was talking about, the debt buy-down, the the shareholder buyback programs, dividend yields, but also understanding net dividend yields so you make sure they're not diluting you in the, on, in the background. And the reason I bring up all these concepts, because it's hard to go do this as easily as the book makes it to be because there's a lot more factors going on. But each one of these concepts is part of a toolbox. You put this tool set, this knowledge set to work for yourself to where when you understand dividends and the importance of yield, it's just like right now, cash has been horrible for yield. People who are used to in their money market accounts, you know, retired people used to get four to five percent straight up out of your savings and money market accounts. Now you're lucky if you get a half a percent. You've got to figure out how yield comes. And we've gotten creative, Bo. I mean, when we've designed portfolios, we still are able to create yields over four percent in a lot of portfolios because we've gotten very creative with how we garnish more dividends somewhere else you know, more yield from a bond portfolio. I mean, there's ways that you can capture yield. And I bring this all to you is because we talked about stock dividends primarily today and buyback programs, which is also an equity concept. But it's not all equity. A good portfolio is going to have a bond side that's going to have yields. You're going to make sure your your, your equity side is going to generate these good dividends that we're talking about. And you want to bring it all together so you understand what the complete side of the yield equation is because I got to tell you, my own thought when I read this book was just like a stock market portfolio that has a really good dividend yield outperforms the broad indices, 
I think a portfolio, a diversified portfolio that somebody like myself or, you, or yourself, if you're a great do-it-yourselfer designs and it has a really good yield, a focus on yield, it's going to probably have the exact same results, meaning you're going to outperform because that dividend yield is so important if you're reinvesting it. And that's the key thing I wanted to share is these are some great items if you just understand the concepts so that when you're looking at portfolios, and I think more and more, don't you think, Bo, that more and more ETFs, um, fund companies are starting to have a dividend yield focus. Absolutely. You know, you can buy portfolios that focus on some of these key concepts. It's just, but this is not a product show. We've never pushed products for you guys because I want this to be an educational place where you come and not where you go and listen to a talking head try to tell you so that you'll buy into their stock that they own or some basket of stocks that they own. Cause that's, I think that's where the financial media misses the mark. They don't educate you. They get you all caught up in the frenzy and the froth of what's going on out there in the stock market. Bo, any thoughts or, you know, this is kind of a, a going deep, but I think some of our technical people will really love this stuff. No, I, I, I love this book. I would highly recommend you guys go out there, check it out. You can get the electronic version out on Amazon. Um, you can get it for your Kindle, iPad, whatever, or just go buy the hard copy. But it's a fantastic read. Um, there's a ton of really, really good charts in here. We didn't even get to touch on some of these char- charts. But Mr. Faber goes into some serious, serious depth just talking about what it's looked like for the last 150 years and why yield is such an uh, important and appropriate concept uh, for portfolio uh, portfolio construction. So it's definitely something worth checking out. It's what we're doing for all of our clients right now, just to give you a peek behind the scenes. We have uh, div- not dividend-focused, but yield-focused portfolios, uh, and we think that's going to continue to do well, especially considering what we've seen in the equity market- markets as of late. Um, so go check out the book. It's, it's fantastic. But Well, guys, thanks so much for tuning in with us. Bo and I are going to go put a little more aloe in some of these sunburns that we picked up from the beach. And I just appreciate you hanging out with us. You know, you can go check us out, money-guy.com. We'll be back in about two weeks. If you want to write the show, you can write me directly at Brian, B-R-I-A-N, at money-guy.com. Or you can write Bo, B-O, at money-guy.com. I'm your host, Brian Preston. I'll talk to you soon. The Money Guy podcast is hosted by Brian Preston. And Brian Preston is a partner with Preston and Cleveland Wealth Management. Preston and Cleveland Wealth Management is a registered investment advisory firm regulated by the Securities and Exchange Commission in accordance and compliance with securities laws and regulations. Preston and Cleveland Wealth Management does not render or offer to render personalized investment or tax advice through the Money Guy podcast. The information provided is for informational purposes only and does not constitute financial, tax, investment, or legal advice. <laughs>